You know, years ago, when billionaire Howard Hughes died, his public relations director asked the casinos in Las Vegas, if you didn't know Howard Hughes owned some of the casinos at the time, um, he, the, the public relations director asked the casinos if they would show respect for Howard Hughes by stopping everything for a moment of silence to honor Howard Hughes. And so for an uncomfortable 60 seconds, the Las Vegas casinos fell silent. And then a pit boss looked at his watch, leaned forward, this is in history, and said, okay, roll the dice, he's had his minute. And I, I wonder how many people treat God like those Las Vegas people treated Howard Hughes. I wonder how many people interrupt their busy schedules once a week, rush into church to give God his time and then get back to doing what they really wanted to be doing. Hmm. True worship of God isn't supposed to be like that. Last week we began this conversation about the heart of worship. And one of the things that we discussed last week was that worship is recognizing who Jesus is. Today, our big idea is this, and I want you to get this down on the outline. Hopefully, you got it in front of you. Just fill in the blank right there at the top and follow along with us if you would. Here it is. Worship is my response when I recognize who Jesus is. Get that down. Worship is my response when I recognize who Jesus is. Jesus talked about worship in a conversation that he had in John chapter 4, great story. If you have time today, just go back and read through John 4. It's an awesome account. But, but briefly, I wanted us to talk through it and walk through it together just so that we get an idea of what Jesus says worship is all about. So take a look at verse 3 of John chapter 4. Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, which by the way was about a three to four day walk, um, so I think I would be tired too. I'm sure you probably would too. Since tired from the long walk, he sat wearily beside the well about noontime, hottest part of the day. I want you to get in mind that this well was on the outskirts of this village, this village in Samaria. Um, the the the. Um, the, the village uh, people would go out in the cooler part of the day, early mornings or late at night to get water. But this was noontime. This was the hottest part of the day. The sun was, the sun was right above them, and Jesus sets at this well. And soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Kind of get a little uh, parenthesis comment here. John says he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. So we get the idea this is on the outskirts of the village. The 12 disciples have gone in to buy food. Jesus is alone, and this woman comes to draw water. And the woman, it says, was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. The animosity between Jews and Samaritans was centuries old. A Jew would never ask a Samaritan for anything. Originally, those um, who lived in Samaria were a part of the Jewish nation. And in about 729 BC, the nation of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And most people were taken away, but a few remained and were left behind in the land. And while they were there, 
they began to intermarry with foreigners that had come into the land. They built a separate worship place in their land. And like Muslims of today, the Samaritans only accepted the books of Moses, only the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. So what happened is this created a huge separation between Jews and Samaritans. So much so that the Jews considered Samaritans to be unclean. It had nothing to do with Samaritans. On top of all this was a gender issue. In the Middle East culture of that ancient day, even today, really, Jesus was a man, and the Samaritan woman was a what? Woman. <laughs> that culture did not allow for any interaction like this to take place. They had no reason to engage in conversation. In fact, for Jesus to talk to a Samaritan woman like this was almost illegal. And she says to Jesus in verse 9, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. So Jesus wants to talk to her about satisfying the thirst in her life. But she completely misses the point. <laughs> Isn't it just like us? Look what happened. She says, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. <laughs> and this well is very deep. Where, where would you get this living water? Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. He's talking about the well water. But those who drink the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. The woman says, please, sir. Give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again. And she's still not getting it because she says, then I won't have to come to this well again. She still doesn't connect the dots. She still doesn't pick up what Jesus is putting down. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't give up, though. Aren't you? I mean, I don't know about you, but there are times when I just don't get what God's trying to tell me. And I'm so glad that he doesn't just walk away from me. I'm done with you. You know, I'm so glad he doesn't treat me like we sometimes treat each other, right? I'm so glad for that. He, Jesus doesn't give up on this lady. He takes a different approach. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, go and get your husband. Now, what's happening here is Jesus is stepping into a part of her life that is uh, empty and hurting. He steps in probably into the most vulnerable spot of her life. She responds, she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says to her, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. By the way, in that culture, in that day, that wasn't the thing to do like it is in our culture today. Huh. Jesus was trying to discuss her life with her. She was the ultimate desperate housewife. Instead of talking about this deeper issue of her life, the woman tries to take the conversation in another direction. It is the classic misdirect. Look what she says, verse 19. Sir, you must be a prophet. <laughs> so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship 
while we Samaritans claim that it is here at Mount Gerizim. I already told you they have installed and created their own place of worship so that they would not have to travel and pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple to worship God. They created a, a site of worship on Mount Gerizim. And she's saying, why is, why is there difference in this? Why do we have to go to a certain place? What's the big deal about all of this? Completely misdirecting this conversation, getting it off of herself, talking about theology. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've talked, tried to talk about God in a person's life before, there have been several times in the conversation where I'm beginning to realize that the person doesn't want to talk about what I'm talking about at the time, and they take me in another direction. Well, you know, I've heard it said that the Bible is this, blah, 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 blah. Oh, I've heard that in church you guys do, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden the conversation shifts to this really irrelevant, nothing conversation. This is what's going on here. Jesus is trying to talk about her heart, and instead she raises this old question of what is the right kind of worship? Hmm. What is the right kind of worship? I grew up in the church all my life. I've been a part of a church. And I have seen this question arise many times. Worship styles, types of songs, instruments used. Are there instruments at all? Do we pray? Do we sing? Do we shout? Do we raise our hands? Do we bow and kneel? So many different things involved in worship, and the question is, what is the right kind of worship? Hmm. This is what she's asking. And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 21. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that location is not what makes worship authentic. In fact, he's saying worship is not merely something you do by going to a place. Hmm. Many people think that if you go to a church building, that you're going to be okay with God. You may think that way. If I can just go to church, then God and I are okay for the rest of the week. If I can just do this one thing and spend 60 minutes in the building, then that's good enough for God. But Jesus says how you worship is way more important than where you worship. Look what Jesus says. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes from the Jews. Now, he's not being derogatory here. He's just saying one group knows very little about God. You worship, but you know very little. But another group knows, they claim to know a lot about God. So you've got these two different opposing views. The Samaritans only accepted the, the, the first five books of the Bible, the, the books of Moses. They rejected the writings of the prophets. 
Um, the, the Samaritans worshipped with a lot of feeling, with a lot of, of emotion, but because they were rejecting a big chunk of the scriptures, the Jews believed that they were rejecting truth. So they weren't worshipping in truth, they were worshipping in spirit only. There are many people who worship with a lot of feeling, but they miss the truth. But on the flip side, the Jews had a lot of the truth. <laughs> in fact, I mean, you think that there's only 10 commandments in the Bible, but according to Orthodox Jews, there's 613 commandments that you are to follow. I mean, the book of Exodus, like the end of the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Deuteronomy carry those commandments. And some of those, I don't know about you, but I read some of those and I think, how in the world did they even live? I mean, some of the Sabbath laws that they had, where you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath, how did they live, right? They were so tight with not only the commandments, the laws, but then the, the Jewish religious leaders added in rules and regulations on top of the 613. So they had more truth than they could use. Problem was, they lacked feeling. They started going through the motions. They lost heart in worship. In fact, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 15. We looked at this verse last week. Jesus says, these people show honor to me with words, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is worthless. They had a lot of truth, but they had no feeling, no heart. The involvement of the heart, I think, is a defining essence of worship. If we're not careful as Americans, we can step into a worship of only using our heads. And we miss the heart, just like the Jewish nation did. If we don't worship from the heart, Jesus says it's worthless. Verse 23 then, Jesus makes this contrast and I, and I say that because there's a but. I, you've heard me say this a lot. Sometimes the buts are really big in the Bible. <laughs> and I believe that. In this case, this is a big but that we need to catch and see today. It is something that Jesus is introducing. I mentioned earlier in our communion that it was a new covenant that Jesus was bringing. It was not Judaism 2.0. Okay? He was not bringing a new version of Judaism. When Jesus came onto the scene, he was creating something brand new. And in this case, he is changing the way we are supposed to worship. Verse 23 says it's no longer the old covenant. He's introducing this new covenant. Look at this change he, he brings in. But... Jesus says. Remember what he, he said before, he said the Samaritans didn't know, they don't know very little about the one they worship. The Jews know a lot, but, Jesus says, the time is coming, indeed it's here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Hmm. Many people think that Jesus is talking about worshiping according to the Holy Spirit and according to biblical truth, but that's not what he's meaning here. He didn't say the spirit and the truth. Catch that. See, for our English word spirit, Jesus uses a Greek word. It's the Greek word pneuma. You may know that word and like pneumatics and other things. It, it's talking about air. It's talking about a movement of air. It's talking about 
breath, really, in the Greek um, language. In the, in the beginning of time, when God created mankind, we're told that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the what? Breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. That phrase, breath of life, is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word pneuma. It's a movement of air. It's a breath of air. It's a movement of air. Breath of life is this, this idea of um, engaging our spirit. I think Jesus was contrasting this ritualistic, lifeless worship to worship that is full of life and meaning and feeling and movement. He's saying that you have the truth, Jews. You have the truth, but you are missing out on the life of worship, the spirit of worship. For some of us here at Pathway Church, we have the head knowledge of who God is. We know that God calls us to worship, and so we come to worship. And we stand, and we sing off the screen, but we don't engage our heart. Jesus is calling you and me to engage our heart, our spirit, in worship. It's kind of like um, my love for my wife. My relationship with her, I threw out several pictures of me and her. My relationship with her um, is not built um, on just feelings. It's built on my commitment to her. But do you think it's important for me to show my feelings to her? I mean, if I said to her the day that we got married... I love you. I'll always love you. I'm going to stay married to you. My heart is yours. And then I never express those feelings ever again for the 30-something years that we've been married. How do you think we'd be doing? Not really good, right? Because there's, there's a commitment. There's a truth. I'm, I'm being true to her. But I also have to involve my feelings. She needs to feel it, sense it, know it, right? I have to express that. She needs to know and feel that I love her. Friends, if you're just going through the motions at church, you are not really worshiping God the way he wants you to worship. Our English word truth is another interesting Greek word. You say, what is this whole Greek stuff? Um, the original New, the New Testament was originally written in uh, Koine Greek, then later translated into English so that we could have it. And so this is why we always go back to what the, the writers used in Greek just to kind of get an idea of what they were talking about because sometimes Greek words, and many other languages are this way too, sometimes Greek words don't really translate all that well into English. And so you kind of miss some things in the translation. And both of these situations, we kind of miss something. This word truth... Um, is not a knowing. It's not a truth to be, to be known. This Greek word, aletheia, it actually means more than just spoken truth or written truth. It carries the idea of reality. Um, it's, it, it, in, the, in the Greek culture, ancient Greek culture, aletheia was synonymous for reality as opposed to, the, uh, to an illusion, the opposite of illusion. 
So it was talking about something being true. It wasn't talking about something of truth. Everybody follow me on that? And so what Jesus was, was leaning in on, he already said that the Jews were right in their worship, that they knew the God that they were worshiping, that salvation came from the Jews. So, so, so the contrast that he's bringing here is not true or false worship. He's saying that there is real or symbolic worship. And we're going past the symbolic worship now. I mean, honestly, many of the Old Testament Jewish elements of worship pointed to something. Um, in, in Hebrews 9, the writer tells us that the tabernacle was a symbol. It was pointing to something. Hebrews 10, the writer says that the law of God was a symbol. It was pointing to something. And then we read in Hebrews 10.1, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a symbol, a dim preview of the good things to come. So if we're not careful, we can emotionally worship a God we don't know. I mean, don't miss this. We can know about God without really knowing him. Right? And we all know what that feels like. I mean, we do it all the time. We follow, we, we um, have somebody on Instagram or Twitter feed or whatever that we follow a celebrity or a sports celebrity or maybe the president or somebody in politics or whatever. We're following them and we get a feel for like we know them and we know all about them. I mean, ask Brooke about Phil Wickham. If you don't know who Phil Wickham is, okay, he's a, he's a worship guy. She's like an online stalker of him. She knows everything. She can tell you when his kids were born. Okay, all of the, so, so we know all of this stuff, but does Brooke really know Phil Wickham? Yeah, maybe, not really. Right? Everybody follow that? And, and sometimes if we're not careful, that's the way it can be with God. We know all about him. We come to church and hear all about him. We sing songs all about him. But we really don't know him because we haven't really engaged with him in our heart. Jesus is saying that worship has to have a reality of who Jesus is. It's, it comes from this recognizing who he is. Spirit and truth corresponds with the how and the who of worship. So, so worship has to have heart and worship has to have head. Worship has to be heartfelt, and it has to be moving, and yet at the same time, you don't turn off your mind when you come into worship. Check your brain at the door. No. Worship should engage the intellect as well as the emotions. Adoring Jesus for who he is, for what he's done, for what he has promised, prompted by this objective reality of who he is. That is worship. Truth without emotion in worship produces ritual. If you've got a, a bunch of truth and you have no emotion, it, it produces people who just go through the motions, it becomes orthodoxy. But friends, if you flip it and have a lot of emotions in worship without truth, it produces confusion and frenzy. My worship should not be traditional because that's what we've always done. My worship 
should not be self-centered, all about making me feel good. I want you to get this down. God is seeking a specific kind of worship. A specific kind. Jesus is transforming worship from being only outward and localized and not just emotional and experiential and feeling-based and sentimental and all that. Jesus says, no, you've got to have both. You have to worship in spirit and in truth. Both are necessary. Look what he says, verse 23. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And in truth, two, both have to be there. The Father is looking for it. God is seeking a specific kind of worship. The thing that grabs me is, if you keep reading though, it says the Father is looking for what? Those. Can we go back a slide? I want to show them this. The Father is looking for what? Sometimes we think he's looking for worship. No. He's looking for worshipers. Do you see that? The Father is looking for those who worship. He's looking for worshipers. People who will engage with him in a relationship with their heart and their mind. Hmm. What I'm coming to realize, finish off the statement there, God is seeking a specific kind of worship from me. From me. And I need to make that priority in my life. If he's seeking it from me, a specific kind of worship, I need to make that a priority. So the question that I ask you rhetorically, I want you to think about, is why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? If your focus is to get something out of church, you've got it all wrong. (laughs) Your focus should be to give God the kind of worship that he's looking for. All too often, church people view themselves as the audience. I don't know if you've ever done that. The people, church people view themselves as the audience and those on the platform, we are the performers in their mind. When actually, you are the performers, and we are the prompters, and God is the audience. That's what worship is all about. So the, F, the F issue, rather, is, is never did I get something out of worship. We should never walk away from a corporate worship time and say, wow, did I, did I get something out of it? I really didn't get anything out of today. It shouldn't be our focus. Our focus should be, am I giving God the kind of worship he seeks? The narrative of Luke 10, I, I had to throw this story in because I, I think it shows it in such a cool way. It says, as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a village where a woman named Martha welcomed them into their home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. So get the picture. 
Jesus and the 12, so, and probably more, so let's just think of like a group of around 20 people are coming in because they had other people and some ladies helping them. And they had other people with this group of disciples traveling with them. It was like their entourage. And, and Martha goes, why don't you guys come over and I'll prepare some food. Come on over to the house. And so they come to the house. So let's just imagine that 20 people are now coming to your house, all right? And, and you are Martha, so you're thinking about all of these people coming into your house, and this is Jesus, all right? This isn't just anybody. This is Jesus, and Jesus has said, yeah, we're coming to your house. It's like, wow, I've got, uh, this has got to be just right. I mean, this is Jesus. I, I want to bless him. I want to do everything I can to, to be hospitable for him. And so she's working hard at planning this meal and all this, and And so she knows she has her sister that's living in the house and she's just assuming, I don't know if you ever do that, but sometimes you assume that they're gonna help you and she's assuming that Mary's gonna help. But Mary decides, no, I'm not gonna help in the kitchen. I'm not really any good in the kitchen. I'm just gonna sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him talk. Kind of like a fangirl. You know? Just sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him talk. How many of you, let's just talk a little bit here, task-oriented kind of people, how many of you that would really bother you? It's like, get up. Get in the kitchen. I need you. What are you doing? Just just gonna listen. I'm okay. No, get up. Get in the kitchen. I'm just gonna listen. She was getting a little frustrated with this. I would too. Says Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and she says... I love this. Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Ever felt that way before? Tell her to help me. Tell her to get up off her rear and get in the kitchen and help me. Because the meal is important. Look what Jesus says. My dear Martha, actually in the Greek, he he repeats her name. My dear Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. And I love this. Mary has discovered it. Now, is he saying that the meal and hospitality and all that is not important? No. He's just saying there's one thing that's most important. What is it? Being in his presence. Not getting so wrapped up into everything else, but being in his presence. And I I don't know how you come to church. (laughs) I don't know what your morning is like. I don't know what your Saturday night is like before Sunday morning because it always affects, don't you? If you've never thought about it, it affects your Sunday morning by what goes on Saturday night. I don't know if it's rushed. I don't know if, you know, you get up late, you're tired, you got other things to do. Maybe you have stuff to do before you come to church. I don't know what your morning is like. But I know that if we get all wrapped up into everything else and we miss sitting at the feet of Jesus, we have missed the most important thing. I'll never forget it's none of you. This, this family, has, this was years ago. They came to the church. 
And, and um, we had seats that went just kind of straight back in that time before our remodel. And um, we had a center aisle. <laughs> and I'll never forget this lady coming in with her kids, kind of pushing them in. This was at a time when, when the kids would come in for worship and then we would dismiss them out to classes, the older kids. And so she's pushing in her kids. I mean, we, we'd already started worship, so they were late. And, and she's pushing her kids down the center aisle. And I'm, I'm here and I'm seeing all of this, almost chuckling to myself because I'm thinking, she's not ready to do any kind of worship whatsoever. She's like arguing. You could tell they had a really rough morning, right? And the kids are all haggard looking and their hair is all messed up and their clothes. And, you know, it's like, okay, mom, I'm okay. You know, and she's pushing them in and she kind of pushes them into the row and they just kind of collapse into the seats and she steps into the row and instantly her hands go up and she's worshiping. And I wanted to stop our worship and say, sit down. So you can take a breath. You're not ready to worship. Are we ready to worship when we come in here? Is that, are we ready to worship in spirit and in truth with our heart and our head when we come into this place? Why it's important is because that's what God's looking for. The Father's looking for. God is seeking a specific kind of worship from me, from you. He doesn't want you to just come to church. He's not looking for your attendance. He doesn't look for you to go through the motions and the rituals. Oh man, I've been to church every week since 1943. Doesn't matter. God's looking for your heart. Your heart. Is your heart and your head involved in this thing called worship? It's what God is looking for. Some of us, we haven't found that yet. We haven't found what Mary discovered. It's my prayer, it's my hope you and I will find that. We'll know what worship's all about. We'll talk more about it this, this next week, so come next Sunday. Would you bow your heads with me?